Hello and welcome to episode 14 of my podcast. Thank you for joining me again. On this episode, I was turned up to make a guest appearance in a video shoot for a, a band that some mates of mine had, thinking I was going to be the main guest star and uh, only to find out that the main man in it was actually a god amongst men uh, in some circles and I ended up looking like just a minion really. I was saved a day at an afternoon tea party for two very influential music industry bigwigs who thought that the cake was about to run out, literally. I'll tell you what I said to Noel Gallagher at the time that he told me it was going to call his uh, new band Oasis. And because next year, 2017, marks the 50th anniversary of the start of the Strawberry Recording Studio story, I'll talk a bit about my memories of working there and growing up with uh, some of those amazing records that were made there over the decades. Every week I talk about a song that I've written over the years. This week I'll tell you about an Inspiral Carpet song that I wrote called Song for a Family, and I'll tell you how that came to be. And talking of families, I always like to talk about something uh, Boone family related towards the end of every podcast. This week, me and the Boone boys embark on a journey into the Undervoid. That's got you thinking, hasn't it? The unsigned band that you're going to hear at the end of this episode are a bunch of lads from Salford called Red Light Effect with a track called Sunflower State. And this week sees the launch of my new monthly podcast aimed purely at giving a platform to unsigned music. It's called Set To Go. You can follow it on Twitter at CB Set To Go with the number two and subscribe on iTunes now. This podcast is brought to you with the pure skills of our friends at Distorted Productions. Okay, let's do it. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes. I've got a great story that I've never told you. I'm going to share this one with you now. Are you ready? Have you got a cup of tea? Yeah, nice one. There you go. Right, so there used to be a band in Manchester called Kid British. A brilliant band. One of the greatest bands ever to come out of the city, to be honest with you. Uh, they disbanded a little while ago. All the individuals are currently working on amazing new projects. So, uh, for example, Adio, out of Bipolar Sunshine, he was in Kid British. And I became real good friends with, with Kid British and they were making a video for one of the singles. So it was a track called Winner. I think it was like the fourth or fifth single they put out. And they phoned me up saying, yeah, we want to get you in our video, you know, because you're a bit of a local celeb and that. So, well, well, I am. I am. I was and I am. So I said, yeah, I'll do that. Yeah, no problem. So I said, where do you want me? And said, well, such a place. Sunday afternoon it was going to be. Come down, film a video, get you in it. So I turns up, it's like spring of 2010. And... Um, Walking in, you know, the big I am, ah, the Boone's here, Boone Army, come on, Boone coming through, I was probably doing all that business. And they said, right, this is the deal, we're going to, we're going to stand you here with a board like that, um, with some words on it, and, you know, you're just going to strut about it, be cool, really, just like you are. So, I said, that's right, I can do that, so go and get some makeup on. I said, do I need it? Said, of course you do, go get some makeup on. So I went to the makeup room, long story short, I got to this little room where there was a makeup artist in there, a couple of people milling about, and I sits down and she puts this thing around my, my neck like a sheet to keep makeup off my shirts and that and she starts putting makeup on and there's a lad next to me a bloke next to me older bloke sat there having makeup on and I thought I don't know who that is there but he's, he's getting on a bit so I said to him what, what, are you um, are you here for video he said yeah I'm in it I'm, I'm going to be in it and I said alright I'm in it as well he said alright who are you what do you do I said I'm the boon <laughs> I'm Clint Boone I'm a DJ I said I'm a DJ like you know do a bit of radio on that Kid British mates of mine, and they said, Will you come down, you know, because you're a bit of a celeb, and, you know, just show, truly face it, video, give it a bit of kudos, or give it a bit of a lift, a bit of a push. I said, That's why I'm here. So I said, What, what, what are you doing? What do you do? They said, he said, I'm a footballer. I said, I'm, I said, Right, what's your name? He said, I'm, I'm Jeff. I said, I'm Clint. He said, he said I'm Jeff Hurst. And I'm like, You what? Jeff Hurst, the footballer, the only man ever to score a hat trick in a World Cup final. 
1966. Jeff first. Sir Jeff, he's like, that's me, like, dead modest. Dead, he, he didn't come in and say, oh, I'm Jeff first. I was doing all that. I'm the boo, no, I'm the boo, no, you. Jeff first sat next to me. An absolute hero, obviously, an absolute hero. Next year, 2017, marks the 50th anniversary of the opening of Strawberry Recording Studios in Stockport, just outside Manchester. Over the years, bands like the Stone Roses, the Smiths, Joy Division, 10CC, the Ramones have recorded there. And there's certain standout records, which I heard as a kid, that were made there as well. Although at the time, I never realised that they were made so close to home. I think in my younger mind, I thought all records were made in, in London probably in the top of the pop studio just uh, after the audience had left on a Thursday night at eight o'clock sort of thing. And it's first set at the time. I had absolutely no conception at all of what a recording studio was. I remember hearing the record Neanderthal Man by a band called Hot Legs and uh, seeing them do it on top of the pops. It was in the summer of 1970. And I always remember it because Elvis Presley was on the same episode doing The Wonder of You. I was 11 years old at the time. And Donna by 10CC. So that song always takes me back to a, a particular summer spent hanging out in a, a derelict cotton mill in Oldham where the, the old discarded cotton bales made for great sort of indoor mountaineering and that would been there all day just having adventures and that. And we'd all be like flat out, lay flat out, stoned on cider and kali. You remember kali, don't you? Kali and licorice. And we'd be singing Donna. I remember Donna being out at the time and all doing it in our finest prepubescent falsetto voices. And actually, talking about that mill, we managed to inadvertently burn it down at the, at the end of that same summer. It was like, a lit match casually tossed onto a small pile of raw cotton. Suddenly, the whole place is on fire, and we legged it and watched from all the edges. Fire engines came from all the local towns, so I'll put the fire out, and they demolished the entire mill a couple of weeks after that. Anyway, moving on, <laughs> confession time there. In 1975, I'm Not In Love came out, with 10cc, and it was a song sent from heaven. It's like, if God was ever to write a song, that was it, wasn't it? And Neil Sedaka, he used Strawberry, and some of the records he made there, so like, that's when the music takes me. That was done there. And I was 12 when it came out. It was recorded at Strawberry. And the four guys who would soon become 10cc were the backing band for Neil Sedaka on that record and Solitaire as well. They did that at the same time. By the time I was 15, 1975, I'd started a mobile disco business with some friends of mine. And it's called the Royton Interchange Disco Roadshow. Don't blame me for the name. It was my mate John. John Frayne's mum came up with the name. Because we were from Royton, which was near Oldham. We had a, a wide selection of records, hence our genres of music were interchangeable. So I didn't really like the name at the time, but Mrs. Frayne, she used to get us a lot of work, you know, God bless her, and so who were we to argue, you know what I mean? We were the Royton Interchange Disco Roadshow. <laughs> More about that another time. But yeah, that's right, 40 years since I started DJing for money. That's gone past, hasn't it? And we'd be up dancing, me and John and Kenny, in front of our... Roger Squire's mobile disco DJ setup and all the lights and that. We'd be dancing to Neil Siddharth and Elton John and Kiki D and we'd have a six-button high-waistband Oxford bag trousers on and tank tops and platform shoes. And never for one minute did I think that some of these records that we were playing were being made just a few miles away Stockport. It was about probably 10 miles from where we were. And as time went by, I started to hear about Strawberry, mainly because of the success of 10CC, because they pretty much built the place and they made it the base. And they didn't need London studios anymore. It's simple as that. They built their own. It was quite a revolutionary idea at the time. You know, a bunch of Mancunians doing it their own way, taking control of things, 
sticking it to the south. <laughs> well, until 1976 when they went and built Strawberry Studio South, but that, that's another chapter in it. In fact, a few years later, another collection of self-confident Manx did the same, didn't they? They set up a company called Factory Records, signed a bunch of lads called Joy Division and booked them into Strawberry Studios to record one of the most important albums of all time. It's called Unknown Pleasures, as you know. So in the early 1980s, I was in the furniture trade, I might have mentioned that on earlier episodes, and I found myself driving to London and Birmingham like two, three, sometimes four times a week in this red Ford Transit van that we had, and I'd be dropping four poster beds off in London and taking various headboards and other metallic contraptions to a place in Birmingham to get them brass-plated or chrome-plated. It was called Midland Chrome, I always remember it, in Perry Bar, Birmingham. It still haunts me to this day. I can still remember the, the smell of the factory. I think whatever they did whatever service they provided to chrome plate this metal stuff, it involved the use of ammonia and certain like corrosive acids and that. It used to stink, this real peculiar stench. I can still remember it to this day. And because the M60 motorway didn't exist back then, I had to drive through Stockport from Ashton to get onto the M6 near Nutsford. And one day, probably I'm guessing 1981, I'm in Stockport at a red light and look, looks to me right at Strawberry Studios. And I couldn't believe it. I just sat there gawping at it, big sign. Strawberry Studios, and I'm thinking all those records that have been made behind that door, and I made a total mess of me ill start that day because you, you know you're at a red light pointing up hill and I'm there rolling back with everybody pipping. Like, but I wasn't bothered because it was Strawberry Studios. You know, as far as I was concerned, I just met Strawberry Studios, so I went on my way. And every trip that I took south after that involved me going up Waterloo Road in Stockport and pulling up on the pavement on the other side of the road and just just stirring that place and fantasising and trying to imagine what it might have looked like inside because it was still active in the, you know, in the, the early 80s it was still an active recording studio but I was never going to get in there well, I, I didn't even have a band at the time I wasn't in the music industry so I'm just sat there dreaming about what might have gone on behind this door you know I was just delivering bloody tubular metal TV stands to a stinky factory in Birmingham me no sign of a music career yet but a lot can happen can't it in a decade by 1991 I'm a professional musician travelling the world having hit records in a band called Inspiral Carpets, getting paid for making music. I still have to pinch myself when I said that. Anyway, eventually, I got to step through the doors of Strawberry Studios, and it was in the summer of 1990, and we'd recorded an EP called Island Ed EP, and we decided to mix it at Strawberry Studios with Chris Nagel, who was the in-house engineer at the time. And I remember the first time I went in, I just felt it right away. It's like the actual static of all those incredible records that had been made there. And it was, just, it was just waiting in the air for those of us who'd grown up with it when you walk through the door and it just acts as a conductor. And you just feel it. And that's how it made me feel. And just all that history, all those 10cc records and Joy Division. And I remember standing in the control room behind the mixing desk and thinking, this is where Martin Annett sat. And Paul McCartney sat here once. He produced his brother Mike McGear's record. Then he saw McCartney sat there and, and worked. And... My most vivid memory of our time in Strawberry was recording the final track on the Beast Inside album. So we recorded most of the album down south at some residential studio in the country and we were finishing off at Strawberry. And while we'd been recording the album, I'd been working on a, a big instrumental track called Dreams Are All We Have. And it was just something I was thinking about with real, just to kill time and try out all these new keyboards that I'd bought. And eventually it started to sound really good and uh, we decided to record it and then we decided to close the album with it. And when we recorded it, I set all my keyboards up in the uh, studio in Strawberry in the live room, like a baggy Rick Wakeman, you know, big banks of keyboards all around me, like two organs and seven synths or whatever. And I recorded the entire thing in one live take, so it was quite a big achievement for me at the time, quite a big moment. 
totally ripped off from Angelo Badalamenti and uh, his Twin Peaks music, which the Inspirals were totally into at the time. It's a massive influence on that. But anyway, nonetheless, a great moment for the Boone stood there like <laughs> Keith Emerson or whatever. And that track was Dreams Are All We Have, the closing track off the Beast Inside album. Time moved on as it does and Strawberry closed in the early 90s and the building got taken over by a, a video production company, I think they were. And I heard the stories of the insides getting ripped out and remodelled and reshaped beyond recognition. It made me a bit sad to hear that. It's like the same sadness I had when the when the Hacienda got demolished, you know, or the, or the sadness I felt for Manchester City fans when Main Road, the football ground, got demolished. I felt for you. And the, the day that I realised that the corner shop that I'd grown up in in Oldham, one day it just wasn't there. They demolished it. I'm thinking... That was part of my heritage, gone. And I felt a bit like that when uh, I heard that they ripped strawberry out. You know, the outside looks the same, but inside, nothing remains. Now, I moved to Stockport 10 years ago. I'm very proud to say I've got the same postcode now as Strawberry Studio, so SK1. I'm about half a mile away from there now as I speak. And I still drive past it several times a week. And my little boys, who are now 5, 9 and 11, all born and raised in Stockport, and they all know the, the monumental importance of that, that address, number three, Waterloo Road, Stockport. We always mention it every time we go past. It's one of those, Dad, you always tell us that sort of moment, you know what I mean? Every time we're at that red light. And I sit there imagining now, still, just sit there imagine what it must have been like 40 years ago with 10cc huddled around that Helios desk that they had, this mixing desk. And they each had their own little bit of the mix to take care of because there was no automation back then. This is way before the digital age swept into town and made all this making music an absolute piece of piss. You know what I mean? It took a lot of hands on the desk back then to mix something. And they're, they're all huddled together. You see pictures of a 10cc sat behind the desk and they look like they're in a little space rocket and making records that are out of this world, literally. Dad, green light, time to move on. <laughs> Get back to reality and that. Anyway, but a couple of weeks ago, I did an interview for a radio station in Stockport called Imagine FM. And the piece was all about the importance of Strawberry Studios. And they were talking about its place in British pop music history, obviously. Now, the radio station is right next door to the old Strawberry Studios building. And I was asked if I fancied going in, having a look around, even though none of it's recognisable now. And bearing in mind, I've not been in there since whenever, maybe 92 or something, 93, when I last popped in to see somebody. And I said, yeah, I'd love to see you. Take me in, let's have a, a mooch about And I went in, and just as I thought, all the walls have been ripped out, so it's like a big, very modern, open-plan contemporary workspace 15 maybe 20 people working away at computers can you hear that that's Oscar Boone 11 playing the piano upstairs he's doing so well with his music that fella he's playing bass and drums now and guitar and piano as well as you can hear and so I stood there a few weeks ago reminiscing trying to get my bearings in the uh, the old Strawberry Studios building looking a bit like a train spotter I must say I think all these people that are working there looking at me like a train spotter there, like a train spotter who's missed his train completely. And I was just looking for the smallest piece of evidence as to what used to happen, you know, within those walls. I knew that where I was standing, roughly, was the control room area, but it had all been opened up, all the walls were gone. I knew that the mixing desk would have been roughly around here, but it was all too open. I just couldn't get my head around the layout. And I saw these three or four steps that, from what I can remember, went down to where the kitchen was. But then on the wall, 
facing me, I noticed there's like a large rectangular shape, so a couple of feet high, seven or eight feet wide, and it's like a window frame with a board on it, all painted white, to blend in with the modern walls. And I recognised the shape, the, the, the proportions of it. It was the original window between the control room and the live room, and I'm thinking, fucking hell, man, that is proper history, that. One of the people in the office said, yeah, there's a, there's a window behind it, behind that piece of wood, there's still glass in it. And if you go on the web and look at any photographs of 10cc working in Strawberry, you'll usually see that window and it's still there. And I'm studying what would have been the control room, eh? buzzing my tits off, goosebumps like that. The mixing desk would have been there, I'm thinking speakers would have been there. And I'm still thinking, this is a spot, this is where 10cc sat, surrounded by mic stands and cymbal stands with reels of magnetic tape whizzing around their heads to create that amazing, endless backing vocal choir sound that they did on I'm Not In Love. It's a legendary tale. They did it in that space. And at that point, no man had invented a machine, a keyboard, a sampler that could do that. So they created a way of manually making this endless backing vocal loop. And that's the spot where they did it. And I stood there thinking, this is it. And on the other side of the window is where I sat and built that big massive bank of keyboards and played that epic keyboard track, Dreams Are All We Have. But more importantly, on the other side of the glass is where Lowell Cream, I'm sure it was Lowell Cream who did the lead vocal for that gorgeous 1972 10cc record, Donna, that gorgeous falsetto voice. He would have stood up there and done that. I'm thinking, right, imagine this, right, on this actual spot, sat right about here, March 1980, so 36 years ago, almost to the day that I'm stood there, sat on this side of the window was a record producer called Martin Anna behind this big, beautiful desk, sat here right where I'm stood. And on the other side of that window, four young lads from the north stood with their instruments at the ready, waiting for the nod. And then the producer, Martin Anna, sat right on this spot where I'm standing, would have pressed a button that would have set two big two-inch deep spools of magnetic tape spinning at 30 inches per second on a big old Studer tape machine. And he would have leaned forward, fag in his hand, pressed a little button in front of him on the mixing desk that said, talk back on it. And he would have said something along the lines of, right lads, go for it. And then this happened. One of the things that the late, great Anthony H. Wilson, broadcaster from up north, brought to us when, when, when he was with us was a, a music industry seminar convention, a bit like South by Southwest that happens in Texas. It was called In The City, and it was based mainly in Manchester for its first few years, and then it started travelling around to other cities around the country eventually. But at one of the Manchester events, me and my wife got invited to a Mrs. Boone's tea party, which is me playing the old record players and my wife serving up this old made cake and that. And as this tea party 
started coming to an end. It was about an hour long or something. And there was still a queue of people waiting for cakes, cupcakes. And I realised in the queue, I spotted two absolute icons of modern popular music. Like some would say two of the most important figures ever in the world of music. So one of them was Seymour Stein. He was the guy that created Sire Records back in the late 60s. And he, he brought us such acts as the Ramones and the Talking Heads. He, he was the one who discovered Madonna. That's the, the biggest thing on his CV, that. <laughs> Not as out of me that. It's brilliant, isn't it? He discovered Madonna. The other guy in the queue was the chap who, I recognise him right away because he's got very distinctive glasses. And he'd, <laughs> yeah, man. he discovered and managed and produced the Rolling Stones for the first few years of their career. Now, he was called Andrew Lou Golden. And they're both queuing up for cake. They're both queuing up to have a munch on wife's cakes, right? And I noticed that on the cake table, there's only seven cupcakes left. And I had a quick countdown in the queue. And Seymour Stein and Andrew Lou Golden were like numbers nine and ten in the queue. And I thought, oh, no, they're not going to get a cake. And the two of the most important men ever to me in in this business because, sure. So what I did, I, I, I just did slightly sneaked in behind Mrs Boone, who's serving the last few cakes, and I grabbed two cupcakes and I walked off around the room, like doing a bit of really wide walks. It wasn't dead obvious. It probably was, actually. Why is Boone doing that wide walk? But I went down the, like, the outskirts of the building, like the room, sorry, and came back in behind Andrew Lou Goldham and Seymour Stein, Snuck up to him and said, yeah, lads, have some cake on me, Boone Army. <laughs> There's a couple of napkins. I saw it out with cake. And you can see the little smiley faces. I think they'd clocked that the cake wasn't going to go round. I think they were stood there saying, hey, man, there, there really isn't enough cake for, for us guys. And then suddenly I'm there like, Boone Army, have a cake, have a cake. Get that down your neck. Did I ever tell you about the time when Noel Gallagher, he was our roadie at the time, and he, he, he joined his brother's band, they were called The Rain, and he joined them on the condition that he could write all the songs and sort of steer the band in the right direction, sort of managing it, really. And the lads in the band said, yeah, do it, you get in. And I remember when Noel told me what he was going to change the band name to, because they were called The Rain, but there's other bands called The Rain in the, in the area in the northwest. And Noel pulled me to one side one day, he said, I've got a new name for our band. And I said, oh, what is it? And he says... Oasis, and I said, that's, that's a rubbish name, that, no. I said, that is, that's not a good name, man. You can't call your band Oasis. I said, because be, every city that you do gigs in, there'll be other bands called Oasis, and they'll be like, hey, we're Oasis, you can't be Oasis. I said, America will be full of bands called Oasis. So over there, you'll have to be Oasis UK or something like that. And he says, no, we're calling it Oasis. And I said, you daft, you won't, you'll get nowhere with the name like that. I seriously remember saying that. I said, you'll get nowhere with a name like Oasis Noel and so we're doing it anyway I'm not listening to you and he did didn't he, he did alright and I, I am wrong sometimes aren't I and in that in that instance I was definitely definitely wrong On each episode, I talk about a song that I've written over the years, what inspired it, 
and who I might have plagiarised whilst composing it, usually The Doors. <laughs> song for a Family uh, from the Inspiral Carpets debut album Life. It's probably one of the simplest songs that I've ever written in terms of, you know, it doesn't need much explaining. It's quite obvious what it's about, really. I wrote it in 88, recorded it in 89. I think the album came out early 1990. The album, incidentally, got to number two in the British album charts. Now, that still feels quite weird to say that. A, a debut album made for very little cost by a garage band from Oldham, recorded in a back street in Manchester. It got to number two in the British national chart, the album chart. We got held off number one by the Carpenters, who just released the Greatest Hits album. And I'm still cool with that. Great band, the Carpenters. But it's quite simply a song, song for a family, quite simply about a working-class family, going about the, the days, what, what they're doing, working, resting. The dad's in the pub drinking beer, playing dominoes. Mum's at work as a lollipop lady helping kids to cross the street, the son's watching his football team on a Saturday getting beat. And the main message of the song is that no matter who we are and where we live and how, how wealthy we are, we all generally have the same priorities. We all pray each night that our families are all right and we all, the working classes particularly, pray that we'll have work, you know, to support the family and, and pay our way. We, we all live on the same dreams, that's what the song's saying. And in my head, I've always pictured it being the same family that I wrote into the song This Is How It Feels. Uh, there's a daughter in the family as well, but she's not in Song for a Family. I didn't have enough space to write her into it. But she does feature in a, a later song that I wrote for the Inspirals, a song called Uniform in 1993, where the son and the daughter of the family have joined the army and they're off to war. As with a lot of the tracks that I've written over the years, it's, it's very much inspired by The Doors. I seem to remember Soul Kitchen by The Doors being the, the, the track that I wanted to capture the essence of, you know, sonically and... To some extent, lyrically, there's similarities in the lyrics. And that little piano riff that you can hear at the end of the album version of Song for a Family is a snippet of a new song that I was working on at the time, and it was a song called Beast Inside, which became the title track of Inspiral Carpets' second album. And it's funny to think that even whilst we were recording that upbeat, psychedelic, garage-influenced first album live, that the seeds for the much darker second album were already being sown. There's a funny story as well to do with Song for a Family. I was on a DJ trip once, a few years ago, and a fan of the Inspirals came over to me, introduced himself, rolled his sleeve up and proudly showed me a tattoo that he'd got on his arm of some of the lyrics from the song, Song for a Family. I immediately spotted one significant spelling mistake and a couple of grammatical errors, but I just could not bring myself to tell the poor lad. Took the Boom Boys on a, an adventure they'll never forget a few nights ago. They absolutely loved it. There was an element of potholing to it and a bit of abseiling. Burr Grylls' name got mentioned quite a lot while we are at it. Mrs Boom was quite nervous as she, she waved us all off, but my boys threw themselves into this adventure with all the bravado of young men going out into this scurry world for the first time, albeit with the dad at side home. So what it is, right, we've got, we've got this cellar space under our front room, which is pretty inaccessible and they never knew about it it's about five foot high it's full of bricks and dust bits of wood and that basically the debris from when the house was built in the, the late 1870s whenever it was so this this room it's not big enough to use as a cellar but it's big enough to store like large amounts of illegal contraband for example which apparently um, allegedly 
a former occupant of the house did. He ended up doing time, though. And so we've got three cellars which are accessible and which the kids know about, all this usable space. But this new part of the house, it came as a complete revelation to all three of them. We're having the front room decorated and I've, I've completely emptied it, which is why I was able to pull the carpet back and reveal the, uh, the secret trapdoor that leads you down into the uh, the dark and dusty underworld of Boone Army HQ, the undervoid, as I've christened it. And when I asked the boys if they fancied coming to have a look under the floor, they're all like, yes, they all ran upstairs getting the torches and phones and cameras and selfie sticks. Mrs Boone shouting, put your scruffy clothes on, put your scruffy clothes on. So they all came running back into the, the front room, looking like the cast of Oliver Twist or something, or, or Dex's Midnight Runners when they did that forky sort of look. And they all lined up next to this hole, and I'm down the hall already now, shouting up to wife. OK, I'm ready for child number one. Pass child number one down to me, being all dramatic. Like, I am ready to receive child number one. And I see Cassius's feet, our five-year-old, hovering above the hall. And he starts getting lowered into me, pissing himself, laughing. And I catch him and I, I lower him down into the void at the side of me. And he's going, oh, Dad, this is so cool. He says something about a gruffalo. Anyway, so boom babies number two and three. Soon followed, armed with like various battery-operated and digital paraphernalia and all these cameras everywhere and lights. And this void under the front room, it consists of like four or five separate areas divided by solid brick walls. And over the years, holes have been created in each of these walls so you can clamber through from one part to the next space and then the next. Probably this, this dealer that used to have our house did it, I'm guessing. And the boys were loving it. And they're like taking photographs of each other like proper explorers doing all that. And I could hear my wife upstairs all muffled up. Clint, are you all right? Are you all right, boys? Are you okay? Kids are like, oh, Dad, this is the coolest thing ever. And in the furthest compartment of the, the undervoid, <laughs> in the furthest compartment of the undervoid, I stumbled across um, a piece of wood wrapped in a newspaper. And I, I unwrapped it and I pointed my torch and it was a message for me in 2009. I said, hey, boys, look at this here. It's a message from your dad. 2009 on a bit of wood. Anyway, I took photographs of it and put it back. Because I'm not moving. I'm going to leave it down here, you know what I mean, for future generations. It's a time capsule, isn't it? Took a photo of it on one of the cameras that we had with us in our uh, Boone Undervoid expedition of 2016. So after about four days, we thought we'd better head back. Our supplies were running low. We were starting to lose track of time. I was starting to act irrationally. At one point, I told them to go on without me. It's what the mother would have wanted. No, but seriously though, we made our way back to the, the trap door, that small window back into the real world, our eyes squinting in the, the electric light from above. We sat there like the last four Chilean miners waiting to be liberated. Remember that? That story about the miners, man, in 2010 in Chile, stuck underground for 69, 70 days, and then they got rescued through an half-mile deep, two-foot-wide hole. It's got to be one of my favourite news stories of all time, that, along with Neil Armstrong stepping on the moon. But then miners when they came, it was like a billion people watched it on TV. Incredible, wasn't it? Anyway, as I was passing Cassius up, the first of the children to be sent back home, I managed to break wind, you know, with the, 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 the strength lifted up. <laughs> and that didn't go down well at all with my me, me fellow miners down there. Can you imagine that when them lads were down in, in Chile? If one of them had <laughs> been a bit gassy, he would not have been popular, would he? So the other boys are looking at me in disgust and I'm like, sorry guys, I just, I just got really excited. You know, like when, when burglars leave a turd on your coffee table. So then I had to explain that how some burglars, don't they? When, they, when they're in the excitement of the moment and, they, you know, they're in somebody's house and they need a quick dump and rather than going upstairs and using the bathroom and waiting everybody up, they just curl one out, don't they, in the front room, often on the coffee table, which is a convenient eye. It's true. Go on Wikipedia, it'll be on there. 
a good mate of mine, right? A really good mate of mine. I'm not going to tell you who he is. He gets so excited when he goes up in his attic that he always needs his shit. As soon as he gets up there, gets his ladders out, pops the uh, loft door open, climbs up. It's a bit of a tricky procedure, isn't it, in some houses? And he climbs up there with all his boxes and bags of memorabilia. And as soon as he's up there, he gets so excited, his ass goes off and he has to get out and drop his bike. <laughs> anyway, so I passed each of my boys up in Air Jordan, youngest first, up to the welcoming arms of the mother. Stuck my head out of the hole like a meerkat like that. Could I get out of that fucking hole? Could I not? I was stuck. I could not get out of it. I'm not as agile as I was in 2009 when I last went down there. You know, nimbly nipping from void to void, leaving little time capsule messages hither and thither, <laughs> like a subterranean Easter bunny. And so the wife had to help me out of this hole. Took ages, got me out, laid me on the floor to catch my breath and that. And I said, I found a message from me in 2009 while I was down there, like a time capsule. So I got my camera out, out of my back pocket to show the picture of it. Switched it on, I said, there you go, look at that message from the Undervoid. Me writing in 2009. And she read it out. Said, Clint Boone, 8.50am, 16th of December 2009. With love, Oscar 5 at school, Hector 3, watching TV, baby on the way. That's what it said. And she says, you didn't even mention me on it. You didn't even mention me on it. I said, I'm really sorry, love, but it's all right. I'll write your name on it when I return to the Undervoid. It was one of the best adventures that my boys have ever had, and we only travelled like 10 feet or something. Okay, that brings me to the end of episode 14. Hope you've enjoyed it again. Please subscribe on iTunes if you've not done so already. Uh, that way you'll be the first in the world to have it downloaded to your device of choice. It'd be great if you could leave some feedback as well on the uh, the iTunes comments section. And thanks to all of you that have already been doing that. And uh, all the positive stuff that people have been saying to me when I'm out and about, a lot of people come up saying we really love the Storytime podcast. So I'm going to keep doing it. I will keep doing it until I run out of stories. And like I do every week, I've put together a Spotify playlist where you can hear complete versions of the songs on this week's episode. Thanks again to Distorted Productions for helping me to put this together. Okay, so I like to close every episode of the podcast with an unsigned band. This week, it's a band from Salford called Red Light Effect. A little bit of information here about the band. Brothers Ian and Dale Scott, guitarist and singer respectively, are Salford born and bred. After stints in various bands, they came together in 2014 to form Red Light Effect. And like many bands, Red Light Effect have seen musicians coming and going in the beginning uh, whilst they crafted the songs. It wasn't until Ian Dixon joined the band on bass and Stephen Hewitson on drums that the sound finally fell into place. As you're about to hear, it's a sound influenced by the Manchester scene of the 80s. You can hear bits of Stone Roses and Joy Division, the Chameleons, but it's not a carbon copy by any means of those classic bands. It's got that nice post-punk feel, but it also sounds new and contemporary. The second single from Red Light Effect, a track called Sunflower State, is what I'm going to leave you with on this episode of Storytime with Boone. Thanks for listening again. This is Red Light Effect with Sunflower State. See you next week. Lots of love to you. Storytime with Boone. Subscribe now on iTunes.